Okay. Let's begin then. Before we do so, as we always do, let us take a moment to pay homage to the infinitely virtuous, magnificently compassionate, limitlessly running out of words now. I'm running out of words now to talk about the Buddha. Ah. The most amazing one, the magnificent one, the victorious one, he who is our guide, he who showed us the path, the explorer and the discoverer, our teacher. Let us take a moment to pay homage to the Supreme Buddha. Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arhato samma sambuddhassa Once upon a time, a man went into work. It was a hot summer's day. The sun was scorching, hot, humid. He and his colleagues in the sweltering heat they got to work it happened to be that their line of work was in a kitchen they prepare food Many customers come in, they buy the food, and it's their job to prepare it. So as all good kitchens do, they have a fridge or a cooler in which they stock their produce as well as the raw material that they need vegetables, fruit, and so on. So it was this man's turn today to clean the fridge and also to make sure that everything was in tip-top condition. So they used to have a, <coughs> excuse me, they used to have a schedule which the staff at the restaurant would follow and they would take turns to go and clear the place up and so on. So, as any good employee would do, loyal, 
to his employer, to his master. He picks up the notebook, which has a checklist of things that has to be checked, ticked off, and so on. And he walks into this cooler. So you can imagine it's about half the size of this room. It's big. Now normally, the first thing you're supposed to do after you walk into this place is to ensure that you don't get logged in. So once you open the door and you walk in, there's a latch which you have to engage. And if you don't do that, then what happens is the door can swing shut. So this is standard procedure. But on this occasion, this man unfortunately forgot to do that. So he walks into the fridge. And as you'd expect, unfortunately, after he walked in, he was attending to whatever he needed to do once he was in, a slight breeze blew, and what do you think happened? The door shut. That's when he realized he hadn't engaged the latch that would have stopped the door from locking itself. Now you can imagine this man's state of mind. He tried to open the door using all his might and effort, but unfortunately all those efforts were in vain. He, standard, he started banging on the four walls, but German engineering as you would have it. It was airtight. So all the banging did no, was of no use. And this was some distance from the main building, so no sound could be heard to the outside people. Half an hour passed. He's now trying to scream at the top of his voice hoping that someone would hear him and he could get their attention. He's banging away. He didn't have anything on him to at least inform someone, not a, not a mobile phone or anything like that. Nothing. Minutes turned into hours. Several hours passed away. No one came. And then slowly but surely, it came to the end of the day. So this man by that point had lost track of time because when you're alone and no timepiece to keep you on time, you lose track of time. What was perhaps a few hours felt like days. So in the end, People wondering where he was and they thought maybe he left early, perhaps he wasn't feeling too well. This is a small shop, not a lot of people. 
But as they would always do, they would walk around, make sure that everyone's clear, the building is clear, the, the doors are locked, the windows are locked, and so on. And of course, as they walked in front of the fridge, they realized that the fridge was locked shut. And standard procedure is that the moment you go in, you engage the latch. As that wasn't done, there was no viable reason to assume that this man was in the fridge. And of course, by that point, he was exhausted. His hands were sore, feet were sore from all the kicking. His throat was sore from all the screaming and he was just so fatigued and so tired. So he was just lying down on the floor, trying to think, oh, what might happen next? So the other colleagues, his fellow workers, unfortunately they left for the day. Now this man, he was beginning to feel the chills because this is a chiller or a cooler, a fridge. So he was beginning to feel the chills and he was beginning to shiver. Now he's been in there for the best part of a day. He was beginning to really feel the, the cold. And he had this notebook on him. So he began to just write stuff on it. Just to while away the hours. And he hoped, perhaps if I just keep myself sane for a few hours, then the following day must come and someone should come and save me. So he waited and he waited. In the end he realized, no, this is not working. And because he was feeling really, really, really cold by that point, goosebumps, hair standing on his body, and he was just he was in such a terrible state. So he curled up to a side. He hadn't taken a blanket or a jacket with him because, you know, who goes into a chiller hoping to spend the evening in there? But he was feeling very, very cold, as you can imagine, and frost. After a while, he was beginning to lose hope. And he thought to himself, Ah, you know, I think time has come. Today's the day. I'm going to freeze to death. That's what's going to happen. So, the only thing I have is a notebook and a pencil or a pen. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write a letter to my family. And that's what he did. He addressed his family, his wife, his children, and he wrote letters to each of them because he had all the time in the world. The only thing that was coming after him was death, not his friends. But we know that this is the friend who never abandons us. Isn't that right? Best of friends. They never abandon you in the difficult times. They're always there. Anyhow, so he wrote these letters to his wife. He expressed his 
unreserved love for her like he'd never done previously. He wrote to his children and said, if ever I punished you or hurt you, it was never intentional. I only did so because I loved you. And to anyone and everyone that he owed anything, something he'd borrowed, he wrote letters to them to say, please, I'm so sorry. I couldn't repay those debts. I couldn't return what I had taken from you. But please do come and collect when I'm gone. So after having done all this, it was getting dark outside, but also in because there was just one bulb on the inside that gave just enough light so that you could come inside and do what you needed to do, but you know, not spend the day. And this ran off a battery. So, as you can imagine, what happens in your car if you leave the lights on? The battery runs flat, right? So the same thing happened. And after a while, the light went off. At that point, he'd completely given up, shivering, curled up inside this fridge. And the night passed away. So the following morning, the workers of the shop, they came in as usual, and it was someone else's turn this morning to go and check the fridge. Now you can imagine then, when someone walked in, they opened the fridge, and lo and behold, what do they see? A dead man. His colleague. He was shocked, but then soon he realized what had happened. So he called the other workers in the shop and they also summoned a coroner so he could come and investigate what had happened. And they also, of course, called for a mechanic so that he could come and figure out what they could do about the fridge so that this ha doesn't happen another time, doesn't happen again. Now. The coroner came and he declared this man dead, no surprise. But then the mechanic came, he inspected every part, every component of the fridge. So that man, the mechanic, he summarized his report and he presented it to the owner of the shop. And he said, scratching his head, I'm a bit surprised. I can't make head or tail of this. This, is, this baffles me. So the shopkeeper asks, what? What seems to be the issue? Yes, of course, you know, we're all a bit shocked because of what happened, but you are the mechanic. You're not his family, you're not his friend. You don't know this chap. What are you worried about? What's your problem? Well, he said, I'm just a bit surprised how that man froze to death. So the shopkeeper asks, what do you mean? Well, according to my calculations, as it happens, this chiller hasn't been working 
for the last 24 hours. So when that man went in, it had been broken. It wasn't working. So however he froze to death is a question to me. I don't get it, he said. Remember, it was a hot summer's day. So however did that man freeze to death? <laughs> Aren't you surprised yourselves? This is what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. The man who went into the fridge, he thought that he was going to freeze to death. So his mind prepared for that. Prepared for what? To freeze to death. He walked into a chiller that, that was broken and it had been for a few hours when he walked into it. So there was not a snowball's chance in hell that he was going to freeze to death. And in fact, he didn't freeze to death. But the sheer terror that was in his mind, in his heart, took over him. And alas, what a pity. He thought he was going to freeze to death. That shock took his life. This is what we call a self-fulfilling prophecy. So what is the relevance of this story to us, you might ask. See, the mind is a cunning little thing. It's amazing what the mind can do. You can think yourself to death. Hmm? You've heard you can drown yourself to death, you can shoot yourself to death, hmm? you can cut or slice yourself to death, you can flag yourself to death. Have you heard of you can think yourself to death, you can starve yourself to death, you can... Th but it's a nice rhythm to it, isn't it? Have I ever heard of you can think yourself to death? Well, you can. I'm not here to talk to you about death, you know, early in the morning. It's not a nice topic, is it? But here's the thing. There is such a thing called a self-fulfilling prophecy. That is the important part. What you believe is true, the mind can make true. What the mind believes, it can manifest. It can make happen. So therefore, you have to be very careful in what you believe, what you accept to be true. See, the same thing happens to us. If you believe that the world outside causes you to suffer, suffering comes from the outside, 
that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because the moment you believe that suffering is out and about, it's there to get you. You're going to suffer, and it's going to come from that person, from this person, from that thing and this thing and so on. What's going to happen is, your mind is going to go into a self-manifested, a self-fabricated suffering mode. So what you believed was going to happen to you has now happened to you. Suffering is a creation of the mind. It is a work of art. It is a fabrication. The mind creates it. And it only creates it when you believe that suffering comes from the outside. <clears throat> Actually, suffering does not come from the outside. But you do suffer, don't you? You suffer when someone does something you don't like. You suffer when nature does something you don't like. You suffer when something you like is taken away from you by someone or just by chance, by nature. Because you believe that there's the potential of suffering to come to you from outside. And when you believe that, well, suffering happens. Because you now feel that you have to protect your happiness. You feel you have to protect your happiness. You feel you have to safeguard your happiness. You feel that happiness is something that has to be earned. And so therefore now you start fighting for it. Happiness is not something you can fight for. It's something you get when you yield. You can't fight for it. The moment you fight for it, that's the moment you lose it. So this suffering that we find ourselves in, in whatever shape or form it might be, the first thing I need you to figure, that, figure out, understand, is that it is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Like the man who thought himself to death, not froze himself to death, thought himself to death, you think yourself to suffering. Now who's responsible for that then? Me? Your mother-in-law? So why blame her then? Your children? Your friends? Or your enemies? Who's responsible for your, for your suffering? Or maybe the politicians? Hmm? That's what we believe, right? Problems are caused by others. Others bring us pain, others bring us suffering. And the moment you think that, now you feel that you have to protect yourself. You feel that you have to safeguard yourself. You, have to, you feel that the, the I have to be protected. You know, the moment you do that, the moment you attempt to safeguard yourself, the moment you try to protect yourself, that is the moment at which you succumb to all the suffering there is in this world. Self-preservation is the reason for self-torture. Now let's look at it through some examples. You know, right from the very primary and the most basic aspect of self-preservation to anything else. See, for instance, 
You have something, there's something that belongs to you. Something belongs to you. Now, you feel that you are threatened because someone could come and snatch it. Okay? So, for your happiness, for your happiness' sake, you have to keep this safe. You have to protect it. So the moment you feel that you have to do that, now this can't just be lying out and around, out and about, here and there. It has to be put somewhere safe. Put somewhere where? Safe. Isn't that where you put everything that you treasure? All your treasures in your safe? Hmm? All the treasures that you might have accumulated throughout your life, you know, they go in a safe. I used to have a safe in my lay life. In locking things away in that safe, I thought I was safe. But really the truth is, where I locked everything, locked my treasures, was where I lost all my happiness. I lost my peace of mind. They said though, even it says on the, on the safe, there's, it, has, it has a slogan, right? For peace of mind. <laughs> They'll have the brand name printed on it and then engraved in it, it'll say, for peace of mind. That's what they say. But truth be told, if ever you feel like you have to lock something away and keep it safe, that very thought is what takes away your peace of mind. So if you have to keep this safe, if, if this is what keeps you happy and this is what keeps you safe, now you immediately attribute threat, fear, grief, all that to outside forces. It could be other people, it could be forces of nature. And now you feel you have to keep this safe. You might keep this safe, but think about what you have to sacrifice. Think about what you have had to sacrifice to keep your children safe, your spouse safe, your house safe, your car safe. Every personal belonging you have to keep safe. But in keeping all those things safe, think about what you've had to sacrifice. It's not the very action of putting it into a safe I'm talking about. It's the feeling, it's the sentiment that you have to keep them safe. Because when you believe that there's a threat looming out there, remember, you create that threat in your own mind. When you believe that there's fear, there's risk, there's danger from the outside, remember, you create that in your own mind. That's how what you give is what you get. If you f point your finger at nature, you know, the, everything else is a product of nature, right? Right, from the good man to the bad man, you know, they're all parts of nature. They're all God's children, as they say. So if you point your finger out and say, that is a threat to me, that is danger. I fear that. Now that is what you throw out. That is what you attribute out to the outside world. These are accusations. Accusations to nature are accusations to God. 
So when you do that, you're giving that out. Therefore, what do you get? The very same. So how can you be happy when you believe that your happiness comes from the outside? And how can you be safe? How can you be free of fear and grief when you believe that they also come from the outside? But the moment you believe that these threats, these dangers, these fears are things that are brought onto you from the outside, that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Paticca Samuppada is a self-fulfilling prophecy. However way you look at it. See, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. That's another way you could construe that. Or in other words, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Take a moment to inspect your lives. Take a moment to examine how life has treated you thus far. Think about the times where you thought that to be happy, you have to build a tower around yourself right? and guard yourself. I mean, that is what home is now, right, isn't it? It's a tower, you're guarded, right? And now uh, there are tall walls and on which there are shards of glass, isn't there? Hmm? Just to keep you safe. Then there are gates, they are very strong and thick gates, nothing can break through them. You know, it feels like you live in a fortress. Who lives in a fortress? Do you know do you know who the scariest person? Not scary, but I suppose uh, who the most who's the most afraid person in a kingdom? Who's most afraid? The king. The king. It's not the peasant. It's not the minister. It's the king. Look at what he sacrificed to claim that he has a kingdom to his name. <laughs> oh, the irony of that. To say that I'm in power, to say that I own it all, to say that look at all my riches, look at all my property, look at all my wealth, look at all my possessions, look at everything I've got. Look at what he has sacrificed to be able to say that. When you are at the top, you have the farthest to fall. So when you are at the top, you have the most things you have to preserve, most things you have to protect, most things you have to safeguard, and therefore the most amount of fear and the most amount of grief. Whereas when you are right at the bottom, then the distance between you and safety is zero because you are on the, you're on the floor. You're safe. You are where safe is. So when we build these towers for ourselves and we climb up on top of these towers, we must stop to take a moment to think, is it worth it? 
Am I doing what I need to be doing? Am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? Am I doing what I really mean to be doing? These are questions you need to ask yourself. Because, you know, if we don't, someone else is going to make these plans for us. As I say, if you don't have a plan, you're always in someone else's plan. That is so true. If you don't have a plan, you're in someone else's plan. If you don't have a plan for life, if you don't have a plan for how you're going to spend the day, if you don't have a plan for how you're going to spend the evening, then someone else will almost immediately give you one. Because when you don't have a plan for how you're going to spend the evening, what you would normally do is go and sit in front of the telly. And then you're in someone else's plan. If you don't have a plan, then you get a call from a friend. And then now you're in their plan. If you don't have a plan for life, then there are people around you who see you as an opportunity to exploit and they will do so. You can't tell them it's their fault. You didn't have a plan. That can't be their fault. So whenever you succumb to these appeals from the outside, whenever you are asked Whenever, you are whenever something is demanded of you, whenever the adverts ask you to do this, that and the other, whenever the sales propaganda comes through your front door, whenever the salesman is there asking you to do something, you've got to take a moment to think about, is this what I mean to do with my life? Whenever someone says, let's do this, let's do that, let's go on a trip, let's go hang around, let's go to the party, let's go to the pub, let's go have a nice time, you've got to ask yourself, is this what I mean to do? Do I want to sign up for this? Remember, every possession is something you lose. You always lose something with everything you possess. But this is what they don't tell you in the small print. Every time you possess something, I like that word possess because it possesses you. Isn't that right? And you think that this is my possession. No, really, it possesses you. <laughs> so, yeah, the word possess is true. And you then become possessed. You become so possessed. Now, who keeps it safe? You have to keep it safe. Who protects it? You have to protect it. You are possessed. Like when an evil spirit comes and possesses you. Hmm? So these are possessions. So whenever you... Pick up new possessions. Whenever you feel that you have, to, you have to take ownership of something, do take a moment to ask yourself, is it worth it? What, am I pay what price do I have to pay for this? It's not the dollars you have to pay. It's not the rupees you have to pay. It's not the credit card that you have to put into the card machine. That is not the price you are paying for it. Although that feels like it, because that you will work out on a piece of paper. You will do the numbers, you look at your budget, you'll ask yourself the question, is it worth it? But remember, there's a much bigger price which you don't see and it's not apparent. That you will only realize through the Dhamma. I share this with you because you live in a world out there where success is determined and defined by your possessions. Right? So say for example, it is a sign of Prosperity, it's a sign of success if you drive a nice car, isn't it? 
No? <laughs> of course. What if you drive well, just a little small chuttanka? Hmm? Is, that, is that a sign of success? Is that prestigious? No. But what is prestigious? They'll tell you on the adverts what's prestigious. You just have to follow. People live like lab rats. That is the truth. <laughs> Always being subject to experiment after experiment. The people who make the ads, the people who does the marketing. I, I have nothing against them, but do remember that you are their lab rats. They have a lab that is your home. They have a portal into that lab that is the what vision? Television. You know the word television means you see something from far. Right? Tele means at a distance. Like telescope, television. So really, I like the word television as well because that's what they use to remote control you. You think you have that thing, you press the button and that changes the channel. You know what they do? They put... The <laughs> you invest in the television that is at home, right, on the, on the TV stand. That is a remote for them. You know what they do back there? They press the button. And you, like robots, you get up from your seat, take your MasterCard, put it in your pocket, get into your car, and you drive to the supermarket. You get the brochure. I want you to start looking at the world around you through a different lens. You know, all these years, you probably have been, you, 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 we all grew up in a world thinking of ourselves as consumers. Didn't we? There are consumer goods. Hmm? Right? So we are consumers. Who's being consumed? Hmm? Who's being consumed? You are being consumed. And see what little price they have to pay for that. No one's going to sell you anything if it doesn't make them a profit, right? Agreed? No one's going to sell you anything if it doesn't make you up, if it doesn't make them a profit. So in other words, if someone's making a profit, then someone has to make a loss. Because that's how the world works. Yeah? Someone's making a profit, someone has to make a loss. So if they're making the profit, do you want to guess who's making the loss? Do you want some time to think about it? Maybe give you for homework? <laughs> it's a tough one, that one, Swami Nansa. We'll need some time to, you know, analyze it. Ask Google if you want. <laughs> See what little price they have to pay? You think it costs them an arm and a leg to put those TV adverts on? Oh no, that's a small price. For very little they invest. They get a part of your life. They get a part of your life. It's so easy to get you to do something. That's called the power of manipulation. Subliminal messaging, advertising, all these things, they'll show up on there and it just controls you. Think about how you've, 
you know, the, the, your plans for the evening changed after you sat down in front of that thing. Your, the plans for the next week cha weekend changed after you sat down in front of that thing. And the funny thing is, they didn't even give you the TV for free. You had to buy that. They didn't give you the laptop, the internet for free. You had to buy that. But all of those things are portals for them to control you remotely. So really, give me another word for television. Two words. Remote? Remote control. Happy now? Oh, happy. <laughs> That's a remote control. I urge you to remain vigilant. Because right under your nose, folks, people will steal, they will take away your peace, your happiness. Because you live in a world that is so heavily influenced. All the time there are influences. You can't even drive on the street. You can't walk on the street, let alone drive, without being influenced by someone. You can't get into a bus without being influenced. You know, even the buses are painted, aren't they? Right? You can't walk. I mean, can you walk for, a, for, for 10 yards without some kind of influence? I'm not saying let's go and whitewash all the billboards and all the buildings and all the vehicles. No, they, ha they have to be there to do what they have to do. I need you to ensure that you have your guard, your shield. That is the only thing we can do. That is the only safe thing to do. That is the only, only sane thing to do. But you live in that world. Remember, everyone is in business to make a profit. And if someone's making a profit, then someone else has to make a loss. That is the way it works. No one's going to give you something for, its, for whatever it's worth. They're going to give you something for whatever it's worth and then some. And that then some is their profit, meaning that's what you lost. They will tell you that you need this. They will tell you that you need this to survive. They'll tell you that you need this to be happy. They'll tell you that you need this to enjoy your life. Don't take that for granted. You've you got to be careful. Because otherwise what will happen is you will spend away and while away your precious life being someone else's toy. Because that is, if that is the remote, then you are the toy. You've seen a toy car, a toy doll, hmm? a toy robot. Press the button, it stands up. Press the button, it takes a walk. Press the button, it goes to the shop. Press the button, it puts its cards in the machine. Press the button, it takes it off the shelf. Press the button, it gets and comes back home. And press the button, repeats the above again. So we need to be cognizant and we need to be aware of this. Uh, you know, in some ways I feel like saying the world is out to get you. But the truth is, you know, you create that world. You, you, you allow yourself to be, to be toyed with. Don't become someone else's toy. Become your own master. Then you don't have to be anyone's slave. But for that, you need to have a strong mind. You need to be able to understand the world as it is. And I will help you 
work that out. We'll talk about it today. How there's the real world and then you create your own world. Because in your own world, in other words, in the world that you create, you have no, you have no control. Like a, dream, like a dream. You know, why do you have nightmares? You're not the director of it, are you? You're not the director of your nightmares. Therefore, that's why you get scared. You're not the director. So in this sensual world that you create, remember, you're not the director. Ignorance is. And ignorance is like a bull let loose. A wild bull let loose. There's no end to the destruction that it can cause. It can take lives. Think about it, if that's not true. People have killed in the name of sensuality, not just in the name of anger, not just hatred, but people have killed for love. Then you've got to ask, is that really love? If loving someone means hating someone else, what is the point of that love? So if we are to take ownership of our own lives, if we want to believe that we are responsible for our own lives and for our own happiness, then you need to put some kind of control in front of you so that those influences that come to you are filtered and you only allow what you want to allow. It's like a firewall. Have a firewall in front of you. And that firewall has to be the Dhamma. So you know what is allowed, you know what is not allowed. Things that are not allowed, things that should not be coming in, don't come in. Things that should, they do come in. Otherwise, you know, you just burn to death. I started to talk to you about this self-fulfilling prophecy because it has real relevance to us. Take a moment to contemplate about this dependent origination process. It all starts with ignorance, right? So it starts with avidya, sankara, vinyan, namarupa, salayatana, phasa, vedana, tanha, upadana, bhava, and jati. If you examine this process, this, uh, this de dependent origination process, dependent origination of what? We've been talking about this for a long time, remember? I've said it's, it's about suffering, dependent origination of suffering. That is why it's, we should you know, be singing off the rooftops about it. Because finally we have discovered that suffering has an origination, has an origin. It is dependent. So therefore, if something's dependent on something else, then you take out those depend, the depending factors, and the moment you do that, the dependents, they're gone. So, in that process, you should now be able to figure how it's a self-fulfilling process. Self-fulfilling, you can take it in two ways. One is the literal meaning of self, and that is the process that it fulfills. <laughs> so really, if someone asked you what is Parish Samuppada in English, you could say the self-fulfilling process or the self-fulfilling prophecy. 
It's a prophecy because a prophecy is, uh, is, is, is foretelling something, and that's a prophecy. You can tell of something to come. That's a prophecy, right? So whenever you, whenever you expect something, there are forces that come into act to make that happen, to make that a reality. These are, all, these are also called affirmations in a positive sense. If you believe, if you really, really, really believe that you can become someone, maybe in the worldly sense a doctor or an engineer, as, as young people do, or you believe that you want to be president of the country, right? or you believe that you want to be an arahant. Once you have affirmed that, once that's solid in your mind, natural forces start acting in your favor. Because the vipakas to make that happen have already been generated. They're all there. They're all out and about. What needs to happen is to draw them, to attract them to where you are, to make that happen, to make it, to make it real, to help that materialize. In the self-fulfilling prophecy, or the self-fulfilling process, see, for a moment, try and... Now, this might be a little bit heavy, but if you pay attention, you'll get it. No worries. In the, in, this, in the dependent origination process, there is one thing that apparently it seems like this process is about to do. Like any process, right? For example, if the, you know, the process of cooking is a process, right? Cooking is so that you can cook your food so you can eat. That's the product, the expected product of that process. The expected product of that process. In the same way, this dependent origination process, it seems like jati or suffering is a, is a byproduct. It seems like it. Whereas the intended outcome, the expected outcome, seems to be something else. It, at least it feels like it. When you look at it, you see that there is attachment. And attachment only comes when what does attachment come after? Vedana, feeling, right? Vedana pachyatanha. So this attachment comes after Vedana, implying that this dependent origination process was put in place. It was instigated for a very different reason, for a very different purpose to what it actually produces at the end. So it almost seems like that end result is a byproduct. Ask people, right? ask yourselves, at some point in sansara, that you allowed that process to start. I know you didn't allow it to start. That is the process that started, right? And now you feel like you did it. But why did it all start? Of course, you never wanted suffering. Who wants suffering? It was, a, it was for a very different purpose. You wanted happiness, yeah? You wanted happiness, and you wanted to protect that happiness and safeguard that happiness. See, in the process of trying to create happiness, what have you actually created? Suffering. So in other words, when you go looking for happiness, you lose it. When you go searching for happiness, it forsakes you. Meaning happiness is always there. We talked about this, we touched on this subject last week, finding the Buddha within. It's when you go looking for it, you lose it. It's there until you look for it. 
So what is the connection to this self-fulfilling prophecy? If you believe that happiness is something you have to seek from the outside, in other words, you are unhappy, I'm not satisfied, I'm not fulfilled, so I have to go look for it from the outside, that principle itself, that manifests itself, and lo and behold, you are now suffering. Because you think, I'm suffering, I'm disappointed, I'm sad, I'm unfulfilled, I'm unsatisfied. Now I need to go and find happiness from the outside. So the moment you deem that you are unfulfilled, unsatisfied, unhappy, and therefore you need to go and find it, well, you know what they say? So be it. If that's what you want, so be it. Until then, you didn't have that problem. It's when you decided, I'm not fulfilled, I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied. I need to go and find fulfillment, satisfaction and happiness from the outside. It's that moment that nature forsakes you. God forsakes you. The truth forsakes you. Like when you decide, you know what, my parents can't look after me anymore. I need to go and fend for myself, I need to go and find you know, my, my, the necessities. I need to go and find, build my own world. Hmm? Create my own being by myself, right? Now what happens? All that time, you had everything to keep yourself happy. When you decide, I need to walk out of paradise, to go and find paradise, that's when you walk out of paradise land. So really, to put it in very simple terms, the only thing we need to do to be happy is to yield. Not go fighting for it. Not battle, not wage war. Yield. But that doesn't seem right, does it? It seems like a very defeatist approach. What you're saying, Swami Nuhansa, just to, just to be and everything will be okay. But, you know, I'm a human being, I'm a, I'm a person, I'm, you know, I've, I've never lived like that. I've always learned to, you know, go and get something for myself. I've always learned to uh, engage. I've always learned to endeavor. I've always learned to strive. So I need to go and get. I can't just, you know, just take a laid-back approach. That's not me. I'm not used to doing that. And look and see what my friends are doing. You know, they're working really hard. Look, 9 to 5 and then 5 to 9 again. And on this side, look at my parents. They're also working hard. Look at all the riches that they have accumulated simply by hard work and labor. Look at all those people. They're jumping up and down with their arms in the air. You know, they're having fun. So to have fun, that's what you've got to do. Look at those friends. You know, they, today you asked us to come here. They're on a trip. See, they're having fun. My best friend, you know, he's, getting, he's got himself on a flight. He's flying somewhere. He wants to be happy. This is how you got to be. You got to go and fight for it. Fight for happiness. You got to go and earn it. You know, whenever you feel this way, folks, take a moment to stop and ask yourself, you know, have you ever seen anyone really happy doing those things? If you asked anyone who's, who's doing anything to be happy, what was the thing you did prior to that? Okay? Hmm? <laughs> if you ask anyone doing something for the, in this, in the, for the sake of happiness, what did you do prior to that? It's something that someone else will have done. Someone else will already have done that. 
And that's why they did that. And then asked them, so did that make you happy? No, so why are you doing this now? Well, because I'm sure now, and this time I'm really sure. This time I'm really, really sure that this is going to make me happy. Your life is full of stories like this. Your life is full of stories where they never end and they lived happily ever after. It never ends. It always ends and they will somehow, someday, live happily ever after. Or they hope so. That's what your life stories end like. You know, take your volume. If you, if you had a book called Life, Right? And imagine you could write your, I think it's time you started writing your autobiographies. Hmm? Right? If you were to write the story of your life as one big volume, right, and each of those chapters would be the things that you've done for happiness. Huh? Would any chapter end and so they lived happily ever after? And so I lived happily ever after? Would it? Just one chapter? Any chapter? No. Because none of those chapters have a happy ending. It's always, and so they lived hopeful of happiness someday, somehow. E each and every chapter ends that way. So, you know, this is a book that you must write and give to your children as their inheritance. Dear child, read this book and learn about the life that I lived. And if you ever decide to do any of these things, this is my book. I have 3,672 chapters in this, all things that I tried to do in the name of happiness. None of them worked. So if ever you think that one of these things is what I want to do, look at the last line of that chapter. It says, and so they lived, hoping, to live happily ever after, someday, somehow. And moving on to the next chapter. <laughs> you know, we've never ended our life stories. This effort that we are here to do is to put that final chapter in. Because your, your, your stories have always been to be continued. Haven't they? Hmm? Every chapter you wrote thus far has always ended to be continued. You've never managed to write a book. Or the book that you are writing, this is your life in sansara, that has never had the end. So therefore we are still writing stories. Think about anything and everything that you have done so far. Hasn't someone else done that? And were they able to end that with two words, the end? No, it has always been three, to be continued. Never ending. So once again I remind you, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whenever you feel that you need to go and find your happiness, because you are innately, you are inherently, you are intrinsically, unhappy, unfulfilled and unsatisfied, remember that very thought puts you into that situation. Happiness is not something you have to fight for. It's your right. You have it. Let's work out how that works and figure out, let's learn that, let's understand that because that's all I need you to walk away with. 
We know the mind and we know what the mind does when it minds its own business. And we know now what the mind does when it doesn't mind its own business. object. This object can be sight, a sound, a smell, taste, touch, right, or a thought, okay. These are, there are one of six objects. This is all the world is. If really someone asks you what is the world, then unless you're talking about interpreting the world, okay, unless you're talking about interpreting the world, you can stop at that. The world is just that. Because when the Buddha passed away, right, he left all this behind. Didn't he? He left the sights behind, the sounds behind, the smells behind, the taste behind, the touch behind. And if he, he left the thought behind. As in not his mind, but the Dhamma. So that is why the present day Buddha can talk to you about what a previous Buddha might have said, might have done. Might have thought even. Those are, these are Dhamma Rama. They are left behind. They are not taken. So these are what make up the world. Do understand please that the mind's business is simply to do just that. It is to mind. When, they, when you get on the tube train, right, what do they say? Please, mind the gap between the train and the platform. So what do they say? Please mind the gap, meaning there is a gap all you got to do is mind it. Hmm? You, all you got to do is mind it. So what do you think you need to do with a sight? Mind it. A sound? Mind it. Smell? Mind it. That's why it's called a mind. Its purpose is to mind, not mingle. Minding something and mingling with something are very different things. So how do you mind something? Well, really, you don't have to do anything for that because that is a very natural process. We know that when one of these things, one of these, they are called objects. Right? Aramana. Objects. These are objects. They are called objects, folks, because this is the object that the process that is the mind has to process. The mind is a process. This, the mind is the minding process. We, you know, when we, when we talk about the mind, it, it almost feels like it's an entity. It feels like it's a being. It feels like it's some kind of animal. It's not. It's a process. Let's start thinking in those terms. The mind is a process. So you are a process. It's not your mind that's hearing me. Hearing is the mind. Because hearing is a process, isn't it? Sound reaching your ear is not sufficient for you to hear, is it? Something else has to happen after that. It has to be received, it has to be recognized, it has to be perceived, right? And all the things in between. That is minding. The problem is when we say the mind, you know, mind and body, it feels like, okay, there's the body, this is one element, this is one consti you know, constituent of all its parts, that's one thing, and then there's the mind, the mind thing. That's not what it is. It's a process, like the cooking process, the baking process, the washing process, 
Hmm? They're all processes. The mind is a process. It's almost like, you know, I would have much preferred if they say it was minding rather than the mind. So minding and body. Minding and body rather than mind and body. Because when you say mind, it feels like it's, it's something. It's not a thing. It's a process that happens. It's a process that happens. So any process needs an input to start it off, doesn't it? Hmm? Input, process, output. That's a process, right? So what is the input to the process? These are the objects. Really what we're learning right now, folks, is what you are, rather than who you are. You are a what rather than a who. The who business is nonsense. You are never a who, you are not a who, and you never will be a who. Right? If you feel like that, then who? To you. <laughs> so you are not a who, you were never a who, and you will never be a who. This who business is a nonsense. And I'll, 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 I'll help you figure that out. These six objects, they, the moment this object comes into contact with the sense door, Okay, with the sense door. So this is like, say it's a receptor. This can be the eye, the ear, the nose, tongue and so on. Right? These are all vipaka. This is not karma, this is all vipaka. This is nature. Okay, this is nature. How about this? This is nature. So I'm giving you a lesson on nature. Hmm? Better than David Attenborough. So this is nature. Now... Once nature comes into contact with nature, a natural process pursues after that. So, now this object has to be minded. How so? It has to be received. And please try and understand this. This is like a, a manufacturing line. Hmm? So, you know, maybe a car manufacturing plant, right? Parts. They are, they, are they, are pro they are processed, right, on a, a manufacturing line. What are they called, manufacturing lines? There's a, it's like a conveyor belt, right? Things just keep on moving, right? So that whole process, if you like, is the mind. So what happens is, the mind at one point, or this, the process at that point is the receiving process. So it says, imagine it's a sub-process there's the receiving process. Okay? Then there's the recognizing process. Hmm? So that is, sorry, the uh, registering process. Thank you very much. The registering process. Then you have the receiving process. No, I'm all over the place. The recognizing process. Thank you. And then you have the responding process or the sub process, right? And then you have the perceiving sub process. So it's the same energy that's doing all these things. When you brush your teeth, right? It's not, a, it's not different people who walk in, so that it's not like one person walks into the bathroom and takes the brush, right? Then someone else comes and takes the brush from you and puts the toothpaste on it. And then someone else comes in, takes the brush and puts it in their mouth. Right? It, that's not how it happens, right? The same person, the same arm, the same hand takes the brush, puts the toothpaste and brushes and then washes the mouth and gargles and spits it out, right? So it's the same person that does it. Likewise, is the same energy 
at different stages. It's processing the object. It's processing the object. So when the object comes in, be that a sight object or a sound object, that object ultimately to be perceived, various things have to happen to it. It's like a function. Various things have to happen, like a computer function, in case anyone of you are familiar with computer programming. There's a, it's a function. This function has to take place. Like, say, for example, when you add two numbers together, okay? Say you are adding 57 and, say, uh, 35. Okay? You want to add these two numbers together. There are several steps. The same person, there are several steps they have to follow to get to the answer. Okay? So, first you do, you add these two numbers together. 7 and 5 is? 12. Right? Carry across. 5 plus 3, 8 plus 1, 9. Now, see, there are several steps that you have to follow. First, you added these two numbers, right? And then, imagine you were a computer that had to process this. Right? There's no magic to it. There's simply logic. You just have to follow it, right? So you added these two numbers together. You took the one on the right-hand side, right? the, the, the ones unit, and then you carried one across because that was a tens unit. And then you added that to that, added this, and then wrote down the figure. These are all steps to get to the ultimate result. Likewise, minding, this minding business, the end result is the perception of it. That's why they say, Aramana, Vijanana, Lakkanan, Chitta. But Vijanane, or otherwise perception, there are things that have to happen before that, before perception can happen. So why do you think then receiving, registering, you know, the recognizing, responding, all of these things happen? Why? because they are necessary, they are essential for the perception to happen. So these are all stages in the same process. So if you imagine like the mind to be a blob like this, okay? At one point, the, as, at the moment the object comes in, now it's, it, it receives it. It's the same thing, this is the same energy. And they mean, after that it goes into registering. After that it goes into recognizing. After that it goes into responding. And finally, it has perceived. So this is the same energy that transforms itself. And therefore, we say there are the various stages in the process and uh, until the end where that object that came in has now been perceived. The object has been perceived. Now you know that it is a sight. It is a sound. It is a smell. It is a taste. It is a touch and so on. That is the function of the mind. Simple as that. That is the function of the mind. It is not the mind's business to do anything else. But take for a moment about all the other things that happen within you. So where is fear in this process? Hmm? Sight object, receive, register, fear, grief, anger. Huh? Does that happen? No. So, so where is all this nonsense coming from? See, first you need to understand what you are and then figure out what you are not. Whatever you are not, carve it out. That's how we make a Buddha. Whatever you are not, 
take it out. Clear that out. And then you're left with whatever you are. So really, give me another, give me five words for Nibbana. What? Etang, Santang, Panitang, Yadidang. No. Give me five words for Nibbana. Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vinyana. This is Nibbana. This is Nibbana. Because that is what you really are. In fact, that is what the mind is. So there's no fear. There's no grief. Kemi, Averi, Abehu. This is Nibbana. So this process, you don't have to stop. We are not trying to stop this process. We are not trying to eradicate or terminate this process. The process is there. The process of receiving, registering, recognizing, responding and perceiving. That process is innocent. It's harmless. It is Nibbana after all. This is why, you know, it's not up to you and I to not think about things. Okay, one of these days we'll start to do some meditation. Some gearing you up for it, getting you there, getting you prepared for that. Because first we need to figure out what meditation is not. In fact, that is the most dangerous thing. What meditation is not, well, if you don't figure that part out, then, because we all have these presentiments about what meditation is. And then we, and immediately we, we start doing those things and then we get lost. So if we, are, if we are not clear, crystal clear on what exactly we are supposed to be doing, then all sorts of bad things can happen. The mind will go insane after that. See, sometimes when we are in the Valley Malua, right, especially if it's a long weekend, the villagers, they treat us with some uh, music, for which we are ever so grateful to them. <laughs> so we know what the, you know, the latest numbers are, you know, the latest <laughs> what the latest tunes are. You know, sometimes before you find out, we find out. Uh, whether, you know, who the latest singers are. We don't, we don't get to know their names, but we get to hear their voices. Huh? So, if you, if you one day find yourself walking up and down on the valley, in the Valley Malua, right, and you then hear some music in the background, right, do you now block your ears and go, no, 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 I shouldn't be listening to this? This is not meditation, because I should be focusing on something else. Hmm? What should you be focusing on? You should be focusing on Nibbana. That should be the object of your meditation, Nibbana. What is Nibbana? Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vijnana, that is Nibbana. What is not Nibbana? Raga, Desha, Moha. That is not Nibbana. So is there Raga in the processing of a Rupa? That's a natural process. Where is Dvesha in the processing of a sound? Hmm? No. That is not Nibbana. So, if you hear a piece of music in the background, it's not you hearing that. It's not the music itself that is damaging your practice or that is harmful to your practice, it's you then afterwards thinking to yourself, oh, these people, don't they know I'm meditating now? They don't, know, don't they know there's a monastery here? How dare they? 
Look at the time now. Hmm? Is this uh, any time to be playing music? People should be going to sleep? How dare they? Don't they know there are Swami Nuhansas up and awake and you know, doing their meditative practice? Now who's responsible for you coming out of Nibbana? They? No, <laughs> you. As I said, we shouldn't look for Nibbana outside because Nibbana was never there outside. The Buddha is always within. But that's what I said, you know, if you, if you believe that happiness is outside and if you believe that you are in a state of suffering and therefore you need to go and find it, that is a self-fulfilling prophecy. You create it when you think you have it. When you believe that you, you suffer, when you believe that you are unfulfilled, you create that. It's not there. Because the mind's job is not to do that. The mind's job is simply to process. Say someone comes into the monastery, maybe, you know, a, a, a young lady, right? And, you know, she's not, she, she wears something that is not fully covering her body. Okay, maybe a low-cut top or something, or maybe a, a, a skirt, or maybe even a short skirt, right? Now, do you think that is destructive to one's Nibbana? Hmm? No, what is Nibbana? Rupa Vedana Sanya Sankara Vinyana. I'll tell you what is destructive to Nibbana, though. Either desire, so... You, you're lured to it. You're, you, you know, you're feeling that it is an appealing, a, a beautiful sight, a lovely sight, something to look at. Or the other way, which is normally what people say is good. And that's good. You know, that's Swami Nanda. So that man, he's, he's very virtuous. He'll never let anyone come into the monastery wearing things like that, scanty clothes or something like that. No, 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 no. How is Dvesha ever Nibbana? Yeah, we are trying to get ourselves to a stage, to a state where the mind is anything with, the mind is okay with anything because it's not the mind's business to cast judgment. It's not the mind's business to have an affinity towards something, have a preference, like and dislike something. These are not functions or purposes of the mind. That's all insane. That's insanity. The mind's job is simply to mind. That's all the mind is supposed to do. It simply minds. So if it's a rupa, it's a rupa. What type of rupa? This type of rupa. The mind can tell all that because it has, it goes through the various stages of that processing so that it's able to process it, it's, it's able to identify it, it's able to, uh, to re respond to it, it's able to recognize it. All of these things the mind is fully capable of doing. I'm sharing this with you folks because I want you from, you know, whenever you come to your senses, because I know this is difficult, I, I, I admit, right? This takes a lot of practice. That's why in the, in, in the task of Nibbana, it's not about how much you know. It's about what you do with what little you know. That is what will help you towards Nibbana. You know, drill that into your heads. It's not about how much you know. It really, really, really isn't about how much you know. It's about how much you do with what little you know. In this practice of Nibbana, I know that what I'm asking you to do is tough. Because the mind has been 
the mind is used to doing something that it's not supposed to be doing. And it's been doing that for a long time. Whenever you saw something, you had to ask yourself the question, do I like this or do I not like it? Think about it when you went to school for the first, you know, your first day at school, right? People walked up to you. Huh? People who were sometimes your age, youngers, elders, and you felt like you had to have, you know, either you like them or you dislike them. You had to categorize them, put them into a, a group. You know, I like this guy, don't like that guy. Like this guy, don't like her. Like this one, don't like that one. Right? You, you felt like you had to do it. And then when someone come, came and talked with you, you, you had to say, oh, he's a really nice guy. See, you, you, you feel like you have to judge. It, fe it feels like it comes so naturally, but once you understand the truth, that is not the mind. That is something else. But you feel like you have to judge. When you walk, when you go to someone, you know, someone throws a party, right? They, or they invite you for dinner, right? And then you are served your food or you serve yourself, whatever. Or maybe you go to a wedding or something and you serve yourself. Even if you cook for yourself at home, right? Once you put it in your mouth, don't you feel like you have to judge it? Hmm? Don't you feel like, you know, unless you either say it out loud or at least think to yourself that this is good, it's not nice, too salty, too sour, too spicy, too sweet, huh? too hot. <laughs> you have to pass judgment, don't you? You have to. It feels like it, it, you have to. You can't help it and you, it feels like you have to do it. It feels like if you don't do it, then something's wrong with you. When you go to a restaurant with some friends, shouldn't you pass judgment about the food? Hmm? The, after you take a first bite, you know, what do you have to say? What's the weather like? <laughs> huh? What do you have to say? Mm, nice, no? You have to say something. You've, because you're always overloading the mind with things that the mind is not supposed to do. It's not expected to do all these things. Because that's not the mind's business. If you walk into the park, right, and you see uh, you know, flowers, what do you have to do? You have to say something, right? You have to say, oh, aren't they beautiful? If someone presents you know, their baby to you, what do you have to say? Now, come on, let's, let's be honest. What do you have to say? And you have to make those funny noises, right? Oh, <laughs> it's so cute. You have you have to say that. I'm not just saying you know their expectation, right? Because even an arahant could could do it. You know, I now understand why arahants don't wish to live. <laughs> you know, among the lay, right? That's why they come in order because they don't have to do all this nonsense, right? But even an arahant could do it, but he doesn't do it simply. He does it only if it's expected. And you know, someone might feel bad if you know that is not the response that they receive. But otherwise, right? In general day-to-day -day life, you know, think about how your mind reacts. Right? You immediately you see something, you have to go, oh, that's nice. That's pretty. So cute. You feel like you have to pass judgment. You're expecting far too much from your mind, folks. You know, this is like on overdrive. The mind is not supposed to be doing this. That's why you're never happy. You know, it's like you're driving a car and you're always in the red. Your mind is like that. It's always in the red. Always exhausted. 
Because it, it's not the mind's business to pass judgment. The mind is simply to do this. Receive, recognize, receive, register, recognize, respond and perceive. That's all the mind is supposed to do. This is all vipaka. You don't have to exert any, any special or extra force for that to happen. This is simply vipaka. So what is the bad stuff? What is the karma part? That's the other part. When you feel you have to pass judgment, when you feel you have to go looking for happiness because you feel you are unfulfilled, right? Remember, you feel you are unfulfilled, therefore it manifests, it materializes within yourself and now you have to go and find a solution to that problem. You know, you create a problem and then go find looking for answers. Or you go looking for answers. That's what we do. How pitiful. Just think about it. You know, we are all just happy. You're happy, right? But you're not happy being happy. <laughs> so what should you do? Create a problem first. First you have to create a problem. You know, problem for the sake of problems. You know, sometimes you tell other people, right? You know, they, we don't have a problem. Can you stop making problems for the sake of problems? Right? Being devil's advocate. Right? Just, just let it be. Right? You, if you fix a problem that does not exist, what happens? Hmm? You create one. <laughs> yeah? It's something we learn in IT. Right? Especially in IT. I remember when I was in, in that career, I, the, one of the first things my teachers taught me, if it's not broken, don't fix it. Because <laughs> if you fix something that is not broken, what do you do? You break it. As a young child, I didn't learn that because I thought when, I, when my parents brought me toys, I, I fixed them when they weren't broken. <laughs> Guess what happened after that? <laughs> I always found that you know, they had a few extra screws which were unnecessary. A few extra wires, unnecessary. I don't know why they put them in there. <laughs> I mean, it worked even without them. Yeah, that's my <laughs> excuse anyhow. So this is the, this is the Vipaka process. This is all very natural. There is no suffering anywhere here. Because if you succumb to Vipaka, there is no room for suffering. This is the mind running in normal mode. The mind is so normal, so cool, it's happy, relaxed, tranquil, equanimous, pacified, settled. This is etang santang etang panitang. See, sabba sankara samato. This sabba sankara is all this nonsense of creating, looking for happiness, going after happiness. That is sabba sankara. So this is all vipaka. This is nibbana. What I've just drawn here, these five processes leading all the way up to perception. This is nibbana, folks. This is nibbana. So nibbana is not something, something, you know, it's like, you know, like something, you know, I don't know. It's not something airy-fairy. It's not... You know, it's not something that is something that escapes you. It's not. It's not something like that. Nibbana is simply the eradication, or where there is no desire, aversion, and delusion. Nibbana is there. See, nibbana. Now I know someone will think I'm mad. Some people will say so. This is nibbana. Why do I say that this is nibbana? Except this is just rupa. This is just rupa. What is there not here? What isn't there? 
aversion, delusion, and desire. So if at some point, desire, aversion, and delusion take hold of this, this is no longer Nibbana. Because if Rupa, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and Vijnana are Nibbana, then Rupa is also Nibbana, Vedana is also Nibbana, Sanya is also Nibbana, Sankara is also Nibbana, and Vijnana is also Nibbana. See, that is the state we need to try to get to. It's not the what happens after death part. That is Parinibbana. Let's not worry about that. That happens naturally. You don't need to do anything to go to Parinibbana. Just wait. Just wait it out. But Nibbana, it's not like that. Nibbana, you have to free yourself from the cankers, from the defilements that have taken grasp. You have to chase away the villains. Cleanse the mind. So this is Nibbana. See, anything you see here in this room is Nibbana, except for one, two, three, four, five, six. <laughs> Your body is what? Nibbana. Your hair, nibbana. Your arms, your skin, your teeth, your muscles, your bones, they're all, that's all nibbana because they're all rupa. Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vijnana start the moment they come into contact with, the, with this process. With the process. They come into contact with a receptor, right? And as soon as it comes into contact with the receptor, the process starts. This is the what process? Mind process. The minding process. The minding process. And that process, unfortunately, is tainted with ignorance and attachment. That is where Sabha Sankara comes in. When the mind is hijacked by these two elements, now what happens? It doesn't stop at this. It doesn't stop at this. Why? Because it believes that it is unfulfilled, unsatisfied, and therefore happiness has to be found from the outside. So when the moment it believes that it is unfulfilled and unsatisfied, because it happens, you know, as, at the moment attachment is there, now the mind is unfulfilled, it's vexed. Right? So now it has to go looking for happiness. But the very effort, the very exertion, the very event of going and looking for happiness is what takes its happiness away. That is what takes its happiness away. So, you know, try and deconstruct yourself. Hmm? This is vibhanga. Right? Try and deconstruct yourself. Look at yourself and see if you can, you can, if you can work out what's really going on here. Your body is all nibbana, folks. There's nothing to nibbanify your, your physical body, your physical existence, that's all nibbana. There's only one process here that is faulty. It's fixing that that we are, we are trying to do because fear is no part of your body. The body will respond to fear. Your heart will start beating faster. You'll start sweating. Hmm? That's all responses to the mind. And when the mind is desirous, again, you know, there are changes in the physical body. That's also to do with how the mind, because the mind has control over this body. The mind can do stuff to the body. When you're afraid of something, hmm? or you know, when, you're, when you're scared, or even when you're happy, you, know, you can have tears of joy. You can have tears of grief. This is the body responding to the mind. You can, you'll start salivating. 
This is again the body responding to the mind. So if I start talking about, you know, food items maybe, huh? if I start describing to you various types of food that you might like to eat, hmm? now, see, what didn't happen until now will happen, will start to happen now. How so? Because the mind is able to, ha it, it has control over the body. So the only thing we are trying to rid here is desire, aversion and delusion. And to do that, because desire, aversion and delusion are manifestations of the dependent origination process. They are outcomes of the dependent origination process. Because when, it, when the mind goes from attachment to vexation, right, and then to compare what it wants with what it has received from the outside, now desire, aversion, and delusion are come out as, as products of that. Because, of course, you need to feel something. You need to experience it. If it's a pleasurable experience, now we call that is desire. If it's an unpleasurable experience, we say that is aversion. If you're undecided, still trying to figure out what's going to be, right, that's delusion. There is the more primitive, more basic delusion, which is your experience of being, you know, of an identity, right? But these three are feelings of, you know, manifestations of the dependent, dependent origination process along the way until you get to the end result, which is the identity, this uniqueness, this self-perception. So try and deconstruct yourself, you know, when you, this is what we do when we do meditation. Try and figure out what is here. Any reaction to Vipaka? So this is not the response part, not the Sankara part, right? This is a reaction because there's a preference. Either you like it or you dislike it. This reaction, the thing is you can't stop it because it's not you doing it. That process runs alongside this process. So there's a corrupt process that runs alongside this. Much like you can't stop this, so you can't stop hearing that, can you? You can't stop perceiving that, can you? You can't stop recognizing that because it's not you doing it. There's no doer here. There's simply a process. A process without a doer. Right? You only begin to feel that there is a doer when this happens. So, walking is a process. If you are able to answer the question, who is walking? That's because there's a corrupt process running. There's a bug in the process. This process needs to be debugged. There's a bug in the process. There's a bug in the process which gives you the impression that this walking is being done by someone. So the walking is fine. Is being done is fine. By someone is not fine. This sense of identity, folks, is a product of the mind's need to separate. Hmm? The mind's need to separate the most basic, the first, most primitive, primary product of that is this self-identity. It's because the mind does not, is not capable, it does not understand, does not interpret the world as all things being the same. The very first thing that it will try to create is this sense of is this sense of separation, and it's through that sense of separation that it then looks at the world around it, and therefore it sees all things as separate. It's like if you look through colored glasses. I've used this example before. 
If you looked at something through colored glasses, now whatever you look at is the same color as the color of the glass, right? But that comes after. So, chicken or egg, which comes first? You can answer, I don't know whether you can answer that question, but you can certainly answer this question. Your, your self-identity is the reason that you see everything else as being separate in this world. The self-identity comes first. Ignorance, of course, is a precursor to that. But ignorance is simply the false understanding, knowledge, that things are in fact separate. So, you know, we, we now need to figure out the meanings of these words. What is ADA? That's right. Anicca dukkha nanatta. As a good lady mentioned, right? If you have a reaction to the vipaka, that is a problem. And that reaction would be either desire, aversion, or delusion, right? But you can't help yourself. Like I said earlier, you know, when you see something, you'll say, oh, these flowers, they look pretty. You can't stop yourself from feeling that way. You might maybe, you know, pull the handbrakes on saying it out loud, but you can't stop yourself from feeling that way. If you see someone pretty, you can't stop yourself from feeling or thinking that he's a look, good-looking, handsome, or a beautiful lady. You can't stop yourself from doing that. When you eat something nice, you can't stop yourself from feeling that it's, it's, it's delicious, it's nice, it tastes good. You can't stop yourself, right? It's not something you can force yourself to do because it's not you doing it. That's why you can't force yourself from doing it. There's a process that is responsible for that. Lack of understanding, or rather ignorance of this, is what kicks off this process. But not this process. Once you have fully grasped this, this will continue, this will cease. I'm going to try and explain to you how ignorance of this leads to this. Why should we learn about this? So what? Because if it's ignorance to this, at least to this, the very understanding of that will dispel any ignorance of this and therefore stop this process. That is the only way that this process can be stopped. Only through realization. There is no other way to stop it. You can't pray to the gods. You can't make offerings. Offering any number of atapirikaras is not going to stop this from happening. In case you were wondering. <laughs> Sorry to burst your bubble. Offering arms is not going to stop this process. And going on a fast or going on, being on Lent is not going to stop this process. Standing on one foot is not going to stop this process. Hurting yourself right, is not going to stop this process. Sacrifice is not going to stop this process. Laying yourself on the altar is not going to stop this process. Nothing is going to stop this process because you've got to look at the root cause to stop or start something. Here's the root cause. Lack of this understanding. Ignorance of this is what causes this. So, what is anicca? What is dukkha? And what is anatta? Let's try and work that out. Why should we work that out? Without that, you can't stop this process. If you can't stop this process, so what? No dinner on the, no food for dinner? No? No. 
you can't stop suffering because as a result of this you get the 11 great fires right here you get jati and as a result of jati now you can't stop feeling grief you can't stop feeling fear you can't stop yourself from worrying you can't stop anxiety you can't stop stress you can't stop uh, you know depression you can't stop any of these things so going on you know taking pills is not going to stop depression folks i'm sorry to say it'll change the biochemistry but it's not going to fix the problem if you have extreme stress this is what you need to understand if you are anxious this is what you need to understand if you are going through a heartbreak this is what you need to understand if you are going through relationship problems and it's affecting you this is what you need to understand if you feel suicidal this is what you need to understand because this stops this this stopping this stops all other mental problems so let's try and work this out jati is the most primary manifestation of separation let me say that again jati is the most basic and the most primary manifestation of of what hmm of ignorance of separation of separation when the mind believes that separation is possible so that's what first happens separation is possible because you can't believe that something is good unless you know that it's possible right first you have to know that it's possible then you believe it's good and then you go about doing it so the mind believes that separation is possible that is why in these talks i try to help you figure and guru hamdro makes a great effort to help you work out that separation is not really possible there is nothing separable all things are one i'll share with you some thoughts some ideas some concepts to help you figure that now let's think about a physical object okay i'll take this this beetle leaf when you see this you feel that this is a separate entity don't you i'm not talking about what you see i'm talking about what you perceive right are we all on board with that right the day you become an arahant you will still see this the same way because seeing is a physical process okay it's a biological process it's a physical process it's a chemical process whatever you want to call it it's not a mental process this seeing i mean the mind is involved but your perception seeing this as a separate thing is not the problem so please don't think that you once you understand this everything you'll see the same and then you go bang yourself into things because you don't see things no 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 arahants are some of the some people who live such a happy life until they pass away they live the happiest of lives so they don't go banging into things okay your perception that this is a separate entity to this is a problem now this might sound so absurd but that is the truth your perception 
that this is a very separate entity to this, these two objects being two completely separate and separately identifiable objects. That this can never be this and this can never be this. This is not, these are, neither of these two things are, are in a state of being this and this is in a state of being this. Right? If, you, if, you, if you don't see it that way, then that is a problem. So let's, let's try and figure out how this comes into being. Why do you see a beetle leaf? Let's, let's try and work that out. And why is it that perceiving this as a separate object is a problem? For that, I brought along with me some Scrabble. Who here has played Scrabble? Almost all of you or none of you? Not familiar? Scrabble? Okay, some of you are, right. So for those of you who are unfamiliar with this, I'll very quickly explain what this is. So Scrabble is a board game. It's a game you play when you're bored. <laughs> right? So you have a board on which you have to lay down tiles. Okay, there are tiles in this. So please, so listeners online, excuse the, the, this noise in case it's annoying you. I don't do it intentionally. So in here, you have the letters of the English alphabet printed on plastic things. Right? These are tiles. Right? These are the tiles. So the way the game works is you can have a minimum of two players and they are given a bench like this and on the, or a rack as they call it and on here you place seven of these tiles. You, you pick them at random from the, from the bag, the tile bag and you lay them out. Right? So I'm going to do that just now. See all the good things you can learn if you come to the sermons? Two, four, six, seven, right. Okay, can you see that? Hmm? What letters do we have? I can't see from here. You can't see them either. No, okay. There's R, P, E, G, V, I, U. Okay? R, P, E, G. V, I, and U. These are the seven letters that I picked from the bag. Now, normally what happens is that a second player would do the same, and then we have a board on which we lay out these tiles and we make up words. Right? Those words must come from the dictionary, so you can't just make up random words. And then for when you play proper words, you, get, you earn points. How many points? It depends on the score that is printed on the uh, bottom right hand side of the type, right? And then there are various other ways you can multiply those points, but we don't need to get into that. So, now here, I'm trying to explain to you the concept of anicca using this. Let's think of some words that we can make with these letters. In fact, if you have a pen and paper, write them down. So, what are the letters again? I'll put them on the board. We talked about this one day in the Sinhala sermon, but some of you 
not all of you would have been there. And for our online listeners, they wouldn't have had the opportunity. So those letters again are R P E G V I and U. R P E G V I U. Yep. Make a few words up. Hmm? Drive. Oh, gripe. Okay, gripe. Uh. Hmm? Peg. Okay. Hmm? What? Ride. Can you make ride? There's no D here, is there? Ah, pig, yes. Pure? Oh, yeah. They've done give. Hmm? Urge, yes. Urge indeed. And then purge. Yeah. Okay, that'll do. You're all very good at this, I can see. Right? I'll give you the board sometime and you can play it, okay? And then that will be one Saturday I don't have to come to the sermon. <laughs> right. Now, these are some words that you can make with these letters. I'd like to draw your attention to gripe. Oh. If you have gripe, you can, what can you also have? Yeah. Oh, and he goes and have rip, can't you? Can't forget that. Right. Now say we are playing this board game, okay? And imagine this is the board, okay? So I can't bring the board here and show it to you. It's not going to be convenient or practical. So therefore, imagine this is the board and I'm now laying down my word on the board, right? So I want to play What word do you think I'm trying to play here? Hmm? What word do you think I'm trying to play? Oh, you don't, you can't see them, sorry. R, I, and here in my hand I have P. Huh? Rip. Sure? Sure? You don't know? <laughs> ah. See, you might think that I've just made the word rip. Yeah. Right? You might think, ah, okay, so this is the word that Swami Nansi wants to make. He wants to make the word rip. Who gives you that right to make that decision? Because in fact, I'm actually making ripe. 
Or am I? Huh? Or am I? So now you're thinking, I've made this word. But what word is it? Ripe. Hmm? So what's the word I've made? What word was I, did I, do I want to make? Huh? <laughs> you think I want to make this word, the word ripe. No. I'll make this word. Gripe. So, here's the thing. Right? I've moved these two letters away. Now you have R, I, and P. Okay? When this word was being made, or as soon as I made this word, okay, as soon as I made this word, you looked at this and you thought, ah, that's a word. And that word was fixed in your mind. You identified that word and you separated that word from all the other letters in this bag and all the other words in the English alphabet, in the, in, in the English language, lexicon. So this became a separate word for you. And in fact, if you had your own rack of tiles, you'd have now started to think about what letters you can add to this to start making your own word. But really, this was not the word I intended to play. This was a word in the making. This was simply a means to this. It was simply a means to this. Now as soon as I added the E at the end, now you thought the same thing again. You thought, ah, okay, so he doesn't want to play rip, he wants to play ripe. Gotcha. You thought. And I thought, gotcha. <laughs> yeah? Because actually that's not the word I wanted to play. Because I had another letter coming along. Now it's another word. But didn't you, well, the moment you see this, don't you recognize this word as a separate word? Don't you identify this as a separate entity? Now this, I'm using this analogy because it's very easy to con convey the concept to you, okay? And then we'll relate this to everything else. So first I want you to understand this, get this into your, into your heads. The moment you see these three letters, you think this is a word. Because really, what is a word after all? It is a symbol, isn't it? It is, it is a symbol, it is a collection of letters that makes sense to you. It's a collection of letters that you can pluck take out from the rest, interpret, right, and identify as something that is separate from everything else. Until then, you can't, you don't do that. See, R-I, you, you don't do that. But the moment I put this in here, now that is something to you, it means something to you. Perhaps in another language, this might mean something to somebody else. Maybe there's another language that uses Roman uh, letters, letters of the Roman alphabet, and for them, R-I is another word. Hmm? But the moment you put this, now the majority of us are able to identify and separate this from everything else. 
this becomes a word on its own. But you didn't see this coming, did you? Right, you did. But in this example, right? Play along with me, please. Yeah. Don't be a spoiled sport. Right? So the moment I added this, right, now all of that changed. Because now you realize, ah, okay, not that. Ha uh ha, -huh, you tricked us. You wanted to play this. And now this becomes a separate word in your mind. You can't help it, can you? You can't help interpreting, reading, identifying, separating this as an entity, a standalone entity. But the moment you did that, you didn't see this coming. I moved this along. Now you see what's going on here? So, I ask you the question. Was this what was meant to be? R.I.P. Was this what was meant to be? In fact, you know, I could do, I could do more. I could take this out. Hmm? IP. An IP address. Hmm? Or I could take this out. I. That's a word on its own, isn't it? I. See, so this, you could have, you could have thought, ah, okay, that's a separate entity. I put this together, oh, no, 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 no. Now that's a separate entity. I put this together. He said, no, that's a separate entity. Put this together. Now he said, no, 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 that's another entity. Put this together. See, when was this complete? When was it ever complete? Shall I tell you where it was complete? In your minds, it was complete. In your mind, it was complete like this. Hmm? In your mind, it was complete when it was like this. In your mind, it was complete when it was like this. In your mind, it was complete when it was like this. But was it ever complete? No. These were all in the process of becoming something else. So much so that after you finish playing the game and all the letters have been laid out on the board, what do you do after that? You put them all back in here. <laughs> Ready for the next player to come in and start playing. So you see, if those words that you made up, okay, if it was the words that were laid out on the board that you put into this bag, how could you make these letters to make up more words, different words? That wouldn't be possible. I don't know if you get what I'm trying to explain to you. You know, we made the word gripe on the board, right? At the end of the game, what we do is we put all those tiles back in the bag and we say, right, thank you, shake hands, right, you won, I lost, whatever, and, you know, we call it a day. But then tomorrow, or two other players would come along, and now they take the same bag, and now they start playing. So what went into the bag? Gripe? Did gripe go into the bag? No, because if gripe went into the bag, now they would not be able to use those letters to make up another word. So gripe was never fixed, was it? In fact, ripe wasn't even fixed. Hmm? In fact, rip wasn't fixed. IP wasn't fixed. And I wasn't fixed. Not that I. This I. This I, okay. <laughs> In the example. None of them were fixed. But as you played the game, each time you played the game, each time you play down a word, you get this feeling that it's a separate entity, don't you? Right? You understand what I'm saying? Now, so that is the concept. 
Where do we apply that? We apply that into everything we see around us, folks. None of these things are fully formed because whatever you believe is formed is simply a projection of your own mind. When you saw the word RIP, you recognized that word and that is why you believe that is a fixed, fully formed word. For someone who does not know that word, they would simply be waiting for another tile or another letter to be added to it and to actually make a fully, fully formed word. But because you are able to project that, you believe, you know, that is what we call pinning something. Okay? That is your, our, you know, because we are able, we have a memory, we know, we, we have come across these combinations before, we have seen these patterns before, and therefore we project them onto the outside world. The projection is not necessarily the problem. It's not because that is necessary to help you identify, to make sense of the world that you see around you. But the problem is, when whatever you recognize, whatever you spot, whatever you identify, you believe is a very separate entity, a fixed thing from everything else. That is the problem. In other words, your perception of it being separate, not you seeing it as being separate. Now, I don't expect you to completely grasp what I have just said. That is why we'll be using lots of examples to help you further understand this point. So not to worry, just hang in there. <clears throat> can, you see all, can you all see this, this, this table here? Yeah? What is it made of? <clears throat> it's made of wood. <clears throat> Excuse me. And maybe some iron, nails, whatever. But you see four legs, right? And a plank of wood. Basic, basically, four legs and a plank of wood. Are you sure that this is a table? Are you sure this is meant to be a table? How do you know that I'm, I was going to stop here. If I was the, you know, if I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make something out of wood, right? why do you think this is where I was going to stop? The only reason, exactly, <clears throat> the only reason that you think that this is a table is because you are able to project a table. And therefore you say this is a table. What you don't know is that I have other plans for this. I'm not going to stop here. In fact, this is going to be part of uh, maybe a palanquin, or maybe this is going to, part, going to be part of a much bigger table, yeah? or maybe this is going to be part of an arch somewhere. Maybe this is part of a bed. I'm still in the process of making it, but you think this is a table. That's because you know what a table is, in your world, you have something called a table. You project it. That is not the problem. That projection is fine. But the problem is you see this and you go, you perceive this as a separate entity from everything else. I repeat, you can't stop it from happening. You're helpless there. You can't stop that from happening. When you look around you, you see all these objects, right? Yeah? You can see lots of objects. You can see the, the mattresses, you can see the, the carpets, right? You can see the table, you can see the lamp, you can see the clock, right? The board, the people in this room, the lights, the fans, the walls, right? All of this. You can't help yourself 
from feeling that, or perceiving rather, that they are all individual objects. They're, they all have their own identity and they are very separate things. You can't help yourself from feeling that. You can't, you know, just, you can't all of a sudden think, well, you know what, Swami Nansa, what you're saying is right. None of these things should be separate. Okay, three, two, one, and it's all the same. It doesn't work like that. Because remember, it's a process. You are not running the process. The process is run. So as long as the process runs, you can't stop yourself from doing it, which is the very reason you can't stop yourself from hearing my voice right now. Because it's a process. You can stop back your ears, but if the sound gets through, if the vibrations get through now, you can't stop yourself from hearing me. Can you? Because it's a process. There's no switch that you can turn on and off in your system where you can decide, I want to hear this, I don't want to hear this, and so on. Because it's a process. Now, the same way, there is a process, a corrupted process that runs in your mind because of the ignorance of those three letters we wrote up on the board earlier, in other words, that this world is inseparable, you feel a separation inside. What is this separation? This identity that you feel that you are. You feel that you are a unique identity, don't you? Don't all of you feel that way? And haven't all of you given that identity a name? Huh? And, and haven't, don't all of you identify that self as this thing and that thing and so on? You might say, you know, I'm tall. You might say, I'm dark. I'm fair. I'm a girl. I'm a boy. I'm a man. I'm a woman. Hmm? I'm an adult. I'm a child. I'm an anagarika. I'm a swamin mahansa. Hmm? I'm an anagarika. And so on. These are all ways of you identifying yourself. So much so that when you, when you identify yourself with that, folks, you really feel that that is you. Let's be honest. I'm a monk because people say I am. It's a convention, is it not? What makes me a monk and you a layperson? One word. Convention. But, when I'm dressed in this way, I've shaved my head, right? And I appear in this way. I can't stop myself from feeling that I am a monk. You know, with emphasis on the word am. That I am monk and monk is me. In the same way, the same goes for you. You know, you feel that you are a gent. You are a lady. Now, that is your body. How do you know that you're a man? Tell me, you've got to stand in front of the mirror, otherwise you wouldn't know, would you? How do you know that you're a woman? You have got to go and stand in front of the mirror, otherwise how would you know? If you were born blind and deaf, tell me, would you know that you were a man or woman? Would you be able to tell? <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> huh? And imagine if you didn't have your limbs if you if you were blind and deaf, you wouldn't you wouldn't actually know that there were there was such a distinction that man woman distinction you wouldn't even first learn about that. But say if you didn't even have your limbs, others you know you could say I, I can feel myself, right? And then I can tell that I'm you know this bodily uh, construction is different to someone else's. But imagine you didn't even have your limbs on you, or the moment you were born they took out your 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 sensory nerves. Now you can't feel anything. Now tell me how are you going to say you're man or woman? 
Hmm? How do you say? You can't say that. Because you will have no perception of man or womanness. In other words, it's a convention that you have learned. Meaning, your mind acquired that knowledge. Therefore, intrinsically, you are neither man nor woman. You are neither man nor woman. To learn whether you are man or woman, you had to go and stand in front of the mirror. You read in the book. Ah, okay. Means I'm a man. That was a convention. The book is convention. But, 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 don't you feel that you are a woman? You know, you don't feel like you are in the shell of a woman, do you? Hmm? You don't feel that you are in the body of a woman, do you? When I talk about it this way, you take a moment, ah, uh, yeah, yeah, I see Swami, no, I, I get it, Swami, I see, you know, I'm not a woman, but I'm in, this, in the body of a woman. But, for, you know, in day to day, as you go about, you know, think about yourself, you know, when you gave that speech about myself, right? did you ever say, I am told that my name is this, right? I live in the body of a woman. Huh? You know, they would have sent a white van. Huh? And two people in lab coats would have put you into it and taken you away to a safe place. You didn't do that. Because you identify yourself with, with this. This is the upadan. This is how the mind clings to the rupa. The mind clings to the Vedana, Sanya, Sankara and Vinyana. This clinging is done to bring about something that does not exist. Separation does not exist. I use these, the, this example of the, of the scrabble tiles to explain to you that none of those words were fixed. They are not premeditated. They are always in the making. All these things you see around you are always in the making. You can never say, that's it, now it's done, dusted, that's it. No change from there on. I'll borrow the simple example of recycling. Right? We know today that plastic can be recycled. So you know that a plastic bottle today will become a, a, a hat tomorrow. Or maybe you know, a book or a pen the, another day. Because the elements that make it up can always be reconstructed and reconfigured, rearranged to make something else. But even scientists who understand and who actually invented this, the process of recycling, still they look at a recycled bottle and they'll tell, that is a bottle. They can't stop themselves from feeling and perceiving that an entity exists. Although they have the knowledge that this bottle was once a pen, See, they'll still say, this bottle was a pen. Huh? And that pen is now a bottle. It was never bottle, nor pen. The truth is, whatever the mind perceives, it projects to the outside. On the outside, folks, you know, those configurations are not, they're not pre-planned. They don't decide to be a bottle. They don't decide to be a pen. Those settings, you know, it's not, a, it's not a fixed setting. There's no blueprint for anything outside. 
It's not like the elements, you know, that are out there, the sun, the wind, the water, the rains, you know, they all come and form something magical. They don't have a blueprint. They're always in the process of something happening to them. We saw the formation of birds the other day, the video. Most of you were there, I, I presume, right? You, there was a video of the, the formation. You've seen f birds flying in formation, formation flying, right? Those birds, they don't know that they are up in the sky to make that formation, do they? That pattern, they don't know that. None of them flew up into the sky with that intention. In fact, you know, say one of you might look at and go, ah, Cinderella. The other will go, Cinder what? But then they'll go, oh, I see a fish. I say Nemo. But only those who recognize Cinderella will go, I see Cinderella. Those who recognize Nemo will say, that's Nemo. But those birds had no intention of putting up a display of Cinderella, no Nemo. That was not intentional, that was not deliberate. These minds that you are, they have a body of knowledge and memory constantly trying to find patterns in the outside world. Because we always go through this pattern matching process. That's how we live, we do it for, for survival. We need it for survival, that's why you know you've seen a tiger and you need to run away. Okay, this pattern matching always going on in your mind. You always see something and you, you, you project. Is that this? Is that that? Is that that? Is that that? Because, you know, the mind's job is minding. Fair enough. Right? The mind's job is minding. So it has to mind. The problem here is, when you, when you identify a pattern, you also, in addition to identifying the pattern, you also identify it as a very separate and very individualistic entity. That is not there because it's all in the process. You can't say in the process of forming something. It's all in a process. It's like the water in the ocean. Right? The water in the ocean, you know, one day you'll take it into a glass bottle. The next day you'll take it into a cup. Right? The next day you'll take it into a bowl. The water never intended to take, those, they take that shape. It's just water, always forming, like the clouds in the sky. Right? They don't have a set plan. They don't have a blueprint. They don't have a, I'm going to look like this today. I'm going to look like that today. They don't have such a plan. Whatever the environmental factors are, determine what shapes they take, and those shapes are all constantly changing. They have nothing fixed. There's no plan. There's no agenda. But we have an agenda. We have a plan, we have a blueprint, we have an image that we forecast, or rather we project. And those projections we see. That's okay. Again, I repeat, that's okay. Those, seeing those projections are okay. Pattern matching is okay. What's not okay is the perception that whatever pattern you have identified is an entity that is fixed, that is there, that is intransient, that is there. That is a problem. But, again, you can't stop yourself from feeling that. You can't stop yourself from feeling that because in your mind, you're constantly looking for separation. You're constantly looking for those separate entities. So much so that the mind itself feels that it is separate to everything else in this world, which is why you identify yourself as an individual. Which is why you identify yourself as yourself. And once you put those glasses on, those colored glasses on, whatever you look outside, you feel as a separate thing. That is why you see this as a lamp.
a fixed lamp. I'm not talking simply about the manifestation. I'm talking about you sensing that there's a fixed object here. Even if I were to tell you that this is made of iron and that iron was previously melted and something else was made out of it, you'll still say, well, then it was the lamp that was that and it was that that has now become the lamp. You'll say it's a child that grows up to become a teenager. A teenager grows up to become an adult. An adult goes, grows up to become, or gets older and becomes an old man. So who grew up? The child grew up, you'll say. Well, that is not true. It wasn't the child that grew up. It was simply whatever the manifestation was at that time. Do you recall, at one point in one of, this, one of, those, one of these talks, I talked to you about the fact that time is an illusion? And all you have is pachupan. Yeah? So, whatever you see, see when you had rip on, the, on, on this rack, that was the pachupan. Rip was pachupan. Meaning, this was what was born out of the causes. But remember, the, those causes don't come into this world with an agenda of creating that word. You projected that word. You decide when the right time is. It's not these letters that decide. Imagine there was you know, a, a robotic arm that simply laid down characters on a board. Okay? It's just randomly taking, so there was a robotic arm. All it's programmed to do is just take random letters from this, from this bag and lay them down on this rack. Okay? From time to time, won't you say, ah, there's a word. And then again you say, ah, there's another word. Ah, oh, there you go, there's another word. You know, you, that's what you said earlier actually. We had, I was laying down these words and you said, ah, that's a word, that's I. And then I put another letter and you said, ah, that's IP, IP or rather IP address. And then you, uh, I put down another word and you said, that's ripe. I'm just randomly placing letters. I have no agenda, I have no intention of laying them down like that. You look at it and go, that's a word, that's a word, ah, there's another word, and there's another word, and so on. You know, that's what happens in, <laughs> in, in nature. That's what happens in nature. Nature has no agenda. Nature is nature. But when the mind has an understanding of, or it has given labels, it, when it begins to identify certain configurations of things, and it gives it a name for, for convenience, that's why it does that. You call this a fan for convenience. But this fan, or the elements that make this up, did not have an agenda coming together like this. They were simply pieces that, were, that you know, came to some kind of collection and then at some point you said, ah, now that's a fan. You decided that, not this. Question, sir? Very good. The problem of this is, because we don't understand this, we allow a similar process to run inside. It is the process that runs inside that sees this as the outside occurrence. Inside, in other words, in the mind, the mind looks for a separation because the mind, under the mind believes that separation is possible. So why am I explaining these things to you? Because for you to recognize and for you to realize that really this separation is not a thing. It's, it's not possible. It's simply the mind perceiving that it's possible. So once the mind understands that, then the mind looks at itself. 
the mind will ask itself the question, well then why do I see these things as separate? If separation is an illusion, right? Why, so, you know, let's say one, one day you learn that Santa Claus is an illusion. So then you figured, oh, so, but when I see Santa, you know, I feel like he's really there. That's a problem. Or say, you know, someone says, that's Moini. Oh, right? it's, it's, just, it's just a fragment of your imagination, right? She doesn't really exist. But then you see that. Then you, it's a problem to you, isn't it? If you see hallucinations, you go to the doctor. You say, doctor, I'm seeing things other people at home aren't, aren't seeing. You know, please help me. I have a problem. You know, we, you, we, we see things, folks, that arahants don't. Rather not see, but we perceive. We perceive things that arahants don't. So what's the problem? Arahants don't suffer. We suffer. We suffer from fear, we suffer from grief, we suffer from anxiety and depression and stress and the loss of a loved one. Hmm? You, you suffer from the loss of a loved one, folks, because you see a loved one. Not because of the loss. You see a loved one. You see a one. It's after you see that one, now you begin to love it, and now it becomes a loved one, and then you lose it, and then now you have a lost loved one. So, that is the problem. When you don't see these things as separate entities, or, or rather very separate entities, you know, there is no room any further for you to grasp these things as belonging to you. Because when there is no you, when there is no self, why would there be a need for there to be things that belong to me? That's why I said the other day, you know, through one day you will recognize, you realize, folks, that there is nothing you need to let go. Letting go is not the process here. It's not the outcome. It's not the expected outcome. It's you'll realize that there is nothing that belongs to you to let go. You feel that you have to let go. A lot of people are really worried, you know, when they become, come to ordain or they want to become an anagarika. They're really worried that I have to let go of my friends, I have to let go of my family, I have to let go of my parents, I have to let go of my children, I have to let go of my phone, I have to let go of that. How can I let go of all these things that are there to keep me happy? Well, the thing is, you sense that there's a someone here that has to be kept happy. You're mad. And for as long as you are in that state of insanity, there are things, yes, that have to be there to keep you happy. It's like a kid. A kid has to have its toy or its dummy in its mouth to keep it happy. But that's what growing up is, right? You don't have a dummy in your mouth now? Or do you? I can't see with your mask on. Huh? But you know, isn't that what growing up is? You don't have to have a dummy in your mouth to stop you from crying. Hmm? But think about it. You know, if we don't mature mentally, and we still need those dummies to keep us from crying, have we really matured, or are we still kids mentally? Physically, we've grown up so much. Huh? There's gray hair on some of your heads. No hair on some of yours, like mine. Huh? But we haven't grown up. We're still kids, kiddos. No, we need to grow up. So the problem is, when you see these things, when you see, when you when you perceive a yourself, right? Now that yourself needs things that belong to me, you can't stop that. 
If there's me, there's my. Okay? If there's me, there's my. When there's me, there's my mother. There's my father, there's my husband, my wife and my car and my house and my chair and my phone and my this, my that and my other. All these my things are a product of this sense of me. So when there are my things, those my things have to be there to keep me happy. Therefore, you can't leave them. This is why I say, your understanding of the Dhamma is not your ability to leave behind the things that you love. You know, that's, you, that, that might sound heroic, but that's not wise. If you are a hero, you might be able to leave things behind. As, as I once thought when I was leaving behind my lay life, I'm leaving behind my parents and my car and my wife and my all other things. I thought I was, I was a hero. But no, only later do I realize, actually, wise, being wise is not that. Being wise is to be able to recognize that none of those things were actually yours to leave behind. As I said, I asked you last week, you know, if you leave this chair as you leave, go home today, are you going to go home and say, you know what, I left the chair I was sitting on? Hmm? How wise I am? Could you say that? No. Because if you said that, people will ask you, well, it, that chair wasn't yours at all to begin with. What are you talking about? Because when there's no self, folks, what do you have to leave behind? <laughs> what is yours to leave behind? But when this sense of self kicks in, because of this need to separate, because you believe that separation is possible, that sense of self kicks in. And now, everything in this world seems so separate. That is why, as I try to show you on the board here, right, when you see those things coming together, you immediately start identifying things. That identification is not the problem, but you can't stop yourself from identifying. It goes a step further, and you separate those things you know, from other, from other elements, from other parts of it. That separation is the problem. So what happens when you separate? What happens when you separate is, those separations, not necessarily the physical outside world, that separation in the mind, once you separate it, it now becomes, that is the way it needs to be. That's the way it should be. Expectations, yeah. That's the way it should be. Now those expectations are cast on them. See, now you are just setting yourself up for destruction. You are setting yourself up for grief and misery. Because you have cast those, those expectations on them now. Because you expect something to be that way. Because that is how you separated it. The mind is a very natural thing. Okay? The mind's purpose is to identify. Identification is part of the mind's job. Okay? Now, if you go all the way back to when the mind first appeared, okay, when the mind first appeared, it would have come into being with the purpose of separation because it would have been based in ignorance. Ignorance is the father of the mind. Without, the, without ignorance, the mi a mind wouldn't have come into existence. Ignorance is the need to separate. So, therefore, it creates a tool that is so skilled, that is so adapt to separation. So this tool, which is the mind, now comes in and starts separating. So as sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, and then the perceptions of that, Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, and so on. Now, when eventually ignorance is dispelled and 
the mind begins to realize the world as it truly is, it can't stop what it came into this world to do because it doesn't need to. It doesn't have to. The mind came into this world to separate, fair enough, because the mind's father was ignorance, ignorance and attachment, right? Without them, it wouldn't have come. So don't ask me where, the, where that ignorance was previously. Don't have an answer to that yet, okay? Somehow ignorance produced a mind which then came in and started separating, okay? At some point, you, the mind realizes that this is what's happening because the mind is able to recognize that. Just like the mind was able to become ignorant, the mind is able to become, is to, is to become, become wise, right? Gain that, gain that knowledge. When that happens, the mind is not able to stop itself from doing what it came in to do, which is that five-step process. But it perceives it differently. Like a car that, comes, uh, that climbs a hill, okay? And then, let's say as soon as you pass the hill, you switch off the engine. Now it will simply roll to the bottom of the hill. Right? But it will it, pick up pace even, that is you know, held by gravity. But the engine is not going to add anything to it, because you switched off the engine. So now it will simply you know, roll to a stop. Yeah? It will just simply come to a stop eventually. When the mind recognizes that its job is not to perceive things separately, and that was simply ignorance that did that, therefore, having now dispelled ignorance, the mind simply perceives those, the outside world, or the mind simply perceives the outside world as, you know, as this sight, sound, smell, taste, touch, but what it doesn't perceive them, it doesn't perceive them as separate entities, which is what it came in to do when ignorance first, first had grasp over it. Clear as mud? The Arahant, the Arahant knows that this is my arms bow, but he doesn't perceive it as a my arms bow. He knows that it's my arms bow because he knows by convention this arms bow belongs to me. Remember, he doesn't, not remember, try and, let's try and understand that he doesn't perceive himself as a separate identity. You know, this, this feeling that we all have that we are unique individuals, right, to put it quite simply, this feeling that we feel that we are unique individuals, that we are who we are, we have a name, you know, and all this, that is a perception that an Arahant does not have. Okay, then, so the Arahant does not, does not identify him or herself as, as, as a separate being. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, when you, when you, when you, the Arahant will be very mindful about who's walking around him so that he doesn't, you know, bump into someone. So that he knows, you know, this body takes up space, right, and we have to be polite to each other, we shouldn't be rude, and, you know, if he burps, he will excuse himself, right? So these, but these are all conventions. But he does not experience, he does not sense, he does not perceive this, the feeling that you and I do that we are a separate individual. This is because what you really perceive as a separate individual, this individualness, is really separation. Try and think, understand it in those terms. What you really sense is a sense of separation. Rather than calling it an identity, it makes a lot more sense to actually 
Think of it as a separation because it is through that that you tell that you are separate from someone else. Isn't it? That's how you identify yourself as separate from someone else. This is why I said the other day, you have two arahants and you ask them, we are really sorry, Venerable Sir, one of you would have to go back into sansara and suffer. Right? If they are truly arahants and you ask them the question, please would one of you step forward, right? They, none, neither of them would have any problem volunteering for that. Because at that point, they don't identify themselves as a separate entity, therefore I should protect myself before the other person. They don't have that sense. To them, they simply two minds. But here we don't have two minds. We have a mind that identifies itself as a separate mind. And therefore it's always you know, self before others. We always feel that way, self before others, right? Although you'll try and act against that instinct, you know, deep down inside, until and unless you become an arahant, there'll always be a sense of, you know, even the tiniest bit of self-preservation is always there because you can't help it. It's not because you're bad or you're terrible. You can't help it, folks. It's like an itch. You can't help it. It'll always be there. You can discipline yourself from, from scratching yourself, but the itch is always going to be there. In much the same way, you know, you can't help yourself from working towards self-preservation. But once you become an arahant, two arahants, ask them the question, one of you will have to suffer again, they will not say, okay, you go, I, I, you know, I've, I've worked so hard at becoming an arahant, please let me be, why don't you volunteer? They don't have a problem with that. Of course, neither of them would want to go and suffer because you know, they are both now free from suffering. But if they had to, now they don't have a problem with who goes. They are happy to volunteer themselves because it's simply a mind. That is what the mind does. The mind's job is simply to mind. Right? If it's pain, the mind's job is to mind the pain. But we don't just mind the pain, right? When you have a headache, think about how you feel about it. Right? You are grumpy after that. Hmm? Now, you know, as I said, the dog knows if you had a bad day at work. If you have a headache, right? everyone else knows. How should they be able to know? They do because you have a long, you pull a long face, right? and you're angry. Right? If you're hungry, a hungry man is then? There you go. How come? What's hunger got to do anything with anger? Jati has everything to do with connecting hunger and anger. That's, that's Jati that does that. Because Jati is a sense of self. And now who's hungry? I'm hungry. And I shouldn't be hungry, should I? Says who? I say that. That is the expectation. But the mind's job is simply to mind hunger. If you're feeling hungry, the mind's job is simply to mind hunger, not to judge it. Now the body, the mind of course knows that the body shouldn't be hungry for long periods of time because you get gastritis and all other sort of complications and all that. That the mind knows, but that's simply knowledge. But the, you know, the emotional response to it, the emotional reaction to it, all of that is rooted in jati, which is this sense of separation, that I am a separate entity, and therefore once you separate something, folks, you have to fight to protect it. Whenever you separate something, you have to fight to protect it. You know, look at, think about your land, your property. When you separated it, now you have to fight to protect it. You separated one woman from all the other women in the world, now you have to fight to protect it. You separated one man from all the other men in the world, now you have to fight to protect it. Don't you? 
You separated one vehicle, one car from all the other cars in the world. Now you have to fight to protect it. Similarly, once you separate yourself from everything else in this world, now it becomes your life's ambition to protect it. And to protect it, you will do anything and everything it takes. If you do only good things, then you acquire merits. If you also do bad things, you acquire demerit. This is why, for as long as there is a self, you cannot help yourself from doing either merits or demerits. This is why in an arahant who does not have a self to preserve or a self to protect, there is no need for merits and there is no need for demerits. But there will simply be actions. But they don't have the power of generating or merit, merit power or demerit power. So, more will come clear in, in future. And I appreciate the question. They're, they're really good questions. So what is the point of this separation? You know, it's a very valid question to ask. You know, if, 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 why do we identify if not to separate? Answer to that is, again, I'm just summarizing what I just said there. The answer to why we identify if not to separate. Remember, this tool for identification was initially a tool for separation. What tool am I talking about? The mind. The mind came into existence to separate because ignorance is the father of the mind. Okay? So the mind came into existence to separate. Eventually, the mind, rec rec the mind realizes that this separation is nonsense. Now, it stops the perception of separation because it, it identified to separate. Understood? It identified so it could separate. You, know, you can't separate without identifying, can you? Remember, I think about a couple of weeks ago, we talked about rupan, rupattai. First rupa has to happen, then rupattai happens. Right? Vedana, vedanattai. First vedana happens, then vedana attai happens. Right? Sanya, sanyattai. Sankara, sankarattai. Vinyana, vinyanattai. So rupa, vedana, sanya, sankara and vinyana have to happen first. Identification. So that you can then go on to separate. But separation stops. Now, the tool that came into existence to allow, to permit, to facilitate that separation simply does the identification part, it no longer serves the separation part. So when separation is no longer needed, now separation has ceased, the energy with which this force came into being initially will carry on until that energy runs out, like a vehicle that rolls off the hill. There's no more acceleration, the engine is switched off, there's no more power going to the engine to keep it going. But the, the simple force of gravity, which is simply the natural force, will eventually bring it to a stop. That is what happens to the Arahant. Like a lamp that fades away, right, and, and dies, just like that, the Arahant passes away into Nibbana. You, the, the arahant no longer adds oil to the lamp because for as long as the oil is keep oil gets added and and you know when one wick lights up and you keep adding another wick this lamp can you know be lit up for eternity isn't that your story right but once you stop adding oil and once you stop replacing the wicks right and then either one will run out either the wick will burn out or the oil will burn out. And once that happens, that's it. So the mind continues to serve the purpose of identification 
basically those five things receiving registering recognizing responding and perceiving it will do all those things but no longer to serve the job of a slave of the master that was jati ignorance was there all along using this exploiting the mind's ability i mean it's terrible what it does because it brings along the mind right gets it to do its dirty job right and then whatever suffering that comes out of it banks it back on the mind itself how wicked <laughs> how cruel how ungrateful isn't it the very the very en energy the very entity that's there to help you do it you know, it's like biting the hand that feeds you isn't it it's like biting the hand that feeds you it's so so ugly so vile and so vicious what ignorance does but unfortunately there's no one else to blame it is the mind itself that is ignorant <clears throat> so it's all you know nicely and neatly packed up into this one bundle the answers and the problems and they're all in one package so that's why we are trying to unravel this and leave all the stuff that is nibbana and take out everything that is not nibbana so we can't go and invent or you know create or or make another mind somewhere the mind is fine on its own the only thing is what the mind does that it's not needed to do and that is not supposed to do once jati is taken out after that there is no need to continue to do those five steps that is why once energy runs out those batteries are not recharged once the energy runs out that's it does that make sense madam okay in future we'll discuss we'll talk more about it in more examples right more metaphors analogies similes and it'll it'll make sense so just hang in there don't worry remember you know i i spend my entire week in the dhamma and you you know you have to come and try and grasp what i share with you you know in a few hours and then guru swami nuances talks and so on so i i you know i i look at it from your point of view i do get into your shoes when when we do these sermons we all do that so that's why you know some of these examples you know we wouldn't need to when we talk amongst ourselves in the song with swami nuances but sometimes we we have to bring them up so that you can understand in one sitting what perhaps we might have had to spend a whole day two days three days a week in the valley malu <laughs> what you reap is what we sow <laughs> well that is your merit so in other words what you reap is what you sow okay i'm conscious of time so we'll call it a day there did you understand the lesson with the scrabble hmm those letters hmm they are not fixed they are they are always prepared and potential for something else it's us with our preconceptions of something we project them and say ah now that's it that's it that's it identification is fine but remember identification is done with another dirty job in mind there's another agenda which is separation but identification process has to happen before separation can happen rupan rupattaya not rupattaya and then rupam yeah first identification has to happen then separation happens so identification recognition responding right receiving these five things are you know off the back of that they are they are piggybacked right jati piggybacks the, the these these five five things so that it can do its dirty job and the the bad thing is the terrible thing is you know it <laughs> it, it 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 takes what the the five the mind gives 
and then it spits back out all the all the suffering back on it that is the that is the thing that we should try and we are trying to work to stop okay <coughs> right continue working on your merits with resolve and determination that is what i do that is what helps me to understand the dhamma that's what helps me to apply the dhamma into my life and make sense of all this because sometimes you know they, they, this might seem really so abstract some of these some of these ideas some of these concepts i you know i really feel for some of our listeners online you know you have the 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 privilege of being present here you can see what we are doing you know and that that connection is really helpful so i do really feel for our listeners online you know if ever you get the chance you know come come and spend some time with us maybe a day at least you know one of the talks if ever you come this way but uh, until such time you know let's just carry on working on our merits that's what helps us all in the end all right let us take a moment then to transfer the merits we have all acquired to the infinite virtues of the noble triple gem the merits we have acquired by chanting pirit listening to the dhamma and engaging in various meritorious deeds today and first and foremost let us remind ourselves how incredibly fortunate we are to be in receipt of the lord buddha's teaching and with immense gratitude let us transfer these merits to the bhikkhus and bhikkhunis upasakas and upasikas who since time immemorial have protected and preserved the sublime teachings of the buddha and passed it down through the generations of the noble lineage in the form of the tripitaka which is thankfully available to us today to study understand and comprehend the dhamma Let us transfer the merits we have acquired to all members of the Mahasangha present throughout the world, including the chief prelates of all of the chapters who have dedicated their lives to the noble path and have committed themselves towards the betterment of all sentient beings. Let us not forget that among them are the monks and nuns resident in your local temples and nunneries who have always been by your side through thick and thin, come rain or shine. Let us transfer these merits to Guru Swami Nuhansi as well as all the teachers resident at the monastery. as well as the anagarikas and anagarikas attached to the monastery let us take a moment to transfer these merits and express our gratitude to those who make great efforts to disseminate the teachings of the buddha be that by transliterating these tom these talks sharing them out with others or inviting others to join them and may through the power of these merits if any of them have been born in the woeful plane redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plane may through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds fulfill the meritorious deeds fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of nibbana sad 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 let us take a moment to transfer the merits we have acquired to our devotees friends of the monastery who for the sake of merits continue to sustain the mahasangha this includes everyone from those of you who have contributed to the construction of the monastery to those of you who provide the mahasangha with shelter arms robes and medicines as well as those who have passed on their know-how and continue to extend their well wishes may through the power of these merits they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds fulfill the meritorious deeds fulfill the noble eightfold path and may they all attain the supreme bliss of nibbana sad 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 let us take a moment to transfer merits to our mothers fathers husbands wives brothers and sisters sons and daughters grandparents uncles aunts cousins nephews and nieces our elders friends and acquaintances employers employees and to all those who have helped supported and assisted us along the way and by the power of these merits may they be healed of any physical and mental ailments and overcome any obstacles to their spiritual progress may they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds fulfill the meritorious deeds fulfill the noble eightfold path 
and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to the devas and brahmas, spirits and demons, primarily the Sakadeva as well as all the numerous gods and deities who are committed to protect and fulfill the Samudasasana. Let us transfer merits to our guardian deities who keep a watchful eye over us and keep us out of harm's way. And may, through the power of these merits, they prosper in divine power and wisdom. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path, and may they all attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us take a moment to transfer maze to our ancestors who have predeceased us and to all those who have been families, friends and acquaintances in this long journey in Sansara and to those who have helped, supported and assisted us along the way. Let us transfer maze to the members of the armed forces as well as the police force who have sacrificed their lives to protect the peace and harmony of our nation and may all those who lost their lives in the war be their friend or foe rejoice in the merits we have acquired today. Let us transfer merits to all those who lost their lives to natural calamities such as the tsunamis, earthquakes, landslides, pandemics forest fires, storms and so on, reminding ourselves that among them will be those who have been friends and family to us in this long journey. Let us take a moment to transfer merits to them and may, through the power of these merits, if any of them have been born in the woeful plains, redeem themselves and be born in the blissful plain. May they abstain from the unmeritorious deeds, fulfill the meritorious deeds, fulfill the noble eightfold path and attain the supreme bliss of Nibbana. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. Let us all resolve that may, through the power and blessings of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, we be able to witness the advent of many hundreds of thousands of arahants on this blessed land. And finally, may, through the power of all the maids we have acquired throughout the day, you and I, and everyone who's helped make this program a success, become an arahatun vahanse or an arahateran in vahanse in this life itself and in the eva of the Gautama Supreme Buddha itself. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. May the blessings of the Noble Triple Gem be with you all forever. Just an announcement to make before we conclude. Next week we have an ordination ceremony at the monastery. Uh, Twelve of our young Anagarikas will be entering monkhood. You're of course all welcome. We, but we won't have the English sermon or the morning sermon in the Dhamma Hall on the day. So for those of us listening or joining us online, just be informed that next week's English sermon will not be held. We will meet you again two weeks after. Until then, be safe, be good, be kind, and practice the Dhamma. May the Noble Triple Gem be with you all. The members of the Mahasangha will transfer their blessings to you. <coughs> Sukhita Tara Vetnva 
निपान परम सुखयन सुखित तार राग गिनी निवेवा द्वेष गिनी निवेवा मोह गिनी निवेवा निवंसपल देवा निवंसपल देवा ನಿವಾನ್ಸಪಲೇವಾನ್ಗೆ ಸೂಸಿ ಅನಂತ ಮಹಾಗುಣ ಬೆಲೆನ್ ಸಿರು ಲೋಕ ಸಿರು ಸತ್ಯೋಮ ನಿಬ್ಬಾನ ಪರಮ ಸುಖೇನ್ ಸುಖಿತರವಿತ್ವ ಸಾಧು ಸಾಧು ಸಾಧು